Monday, Monday afternoon, theologian. Yeah, I thought I'd go ahead and just start recording so I could tell you about my wonderful divine interruptions that have been happening this last 12 hours or so. Oh, well, that sounds intriguing. Yeah, it caused me to be able to just sign on at 1101 by the hair of my chinny chin chin. I have that too. (laughs) (laughs) It started yesterday as I was just trying to buy a gift for a relative online. It would not accept my credit card. And I was trying to figure out why, because I knew that that particular company normally accepts that style of credit card, et cetera, et cetera. Well, after jumping through a number of hoops, I got them to accept that credit card and we finally bought the gift. And then I got upstairs and started to close out a couple of things and recognized that iMovie was not working properly. The iMovie that I use every day <laughs> and that I use to do these videos that we're going to be doing for you guys. And uh, it wasn't working. So then I went onto a forum and asked questions and tried to find out if there are people much smarter than I am who could tell me what I needed to do to make that work again. And I tried a couple of things, but to no avail. And finally it said, oh, it might be that you have to do some updates with your operating system on your computer. Simple, right? No, never. (laughs) (laughs) That was cutting way into my bedtime. (laughs) And then it said, okay, yeah, there are a couple of updates. So when I say a couple of updates, I'm thinking it's going to go little white line going across to the right of the screen, restart, boom, you're good to go. 10 minutes. 15 minutes, 20 minutes, it's estimating, you know, the little worry thing he's worrying and worrying and worrying. That one finishes. And I think, good, finally, now I can do that. Oh, now here's the second update. (laughs) (laughs) White line moving slowly, worry thing, worry thing, estimating the time, 10 minutes, 12 minutes, 13 minutes. (laughs) I just want to go to bed. And so finally, we got that thing updated, and I got up this morning to see if maybe I could make that work. And what I had to do was dump everything I had done previously, most recently, and then go back into my backup file and do what I did a year ago and copy and paste into my external hard drive. And voila, I can now use iMovie again. And there was great rejoicing. The good news is this morning, as I was pondering the meaning of all that, I found out that that's what I needed to title my sermon for this coming Sunday in the Advent season. Redemptive interruptions. (laughs) There we go. Because I was thinking about those verses that say things like, when God's timing was fulfilled, all these things came to pass. I think I'm seeing a tie in here. (laughs) (laughs) I think God's been trying to get my attention so that he would fill me up with some things that I can share that will actually be useful and applicable to real people's lives, because he reminded me that I'm a real people. (laughs) Yeah, and not only that, you have a nice sermon illustration. Mm -hmm. You just got a sneak preview right there. (laughs) I got a mile marker that showed up today, because as I was checking everything out to see if stuff still worked, I went into our little uh, YouTube thing. We passed the 1,000 view mark this week. Yay! It is. It's kind of exciting, actually. 
I started to feel selfish about that and say that the next big mile marker for me is Christ's second coming. Because <laughs> <laughs> about 11.30 last night, I was really hoping he'd just come on back and I could just leave all this technology stuff behind. Yeah, there have been numerous days in my life of trials when I'd be going, it'd be okay if you wanted to come right now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and the next big divine interruption for us. Yeah, just in the shower this morning, praying for that hurricane of the Holy Spirit moving across the country and the world mm-hmm. to find those last lost sinners that need to repent and yeah. to put their faith in Christ. And again, that's a good time for us to bring up that movie that's coming out just after the beginning of 2023. You mean the new scary uh, zombie apocalypse movie that we've been waiting for for months? No. No. (laughs) No. This one has a little different theme. Uh, It's called Jesus Revolution. And I think it's going to be a good one. And I'm looking forward to it. I am too, because it takes a look at what happened in, you know, the last one that happened in the early 70s that uh, mm-hmm. made a huge difference in the life of some folks that are now putting that movie together. And I suspect that there will be more lives touched even as they continue to move toward the release of that movie. Because, in fact, this really plays into that whole in God's appointed time Everything he does points to specific events, and he's waiting for them to come at the right time because he knows he's orchestrating other events that would converge with that so that they would be really effective. And so that it's no question that he's the one who's been orchestrating those events. It all points to him. And because this pesky little thing called the pandemic interrupted their preparation for this movie, we can bet that God is waiting for just the right time for it to be released. So I'm looking forward to it. I think it's going to be big. Yeah, I think that there are a lot of of lives, even today, being prepared for that period in a couple of months. I believe so, and I'm praying for it. I know that my life was impacted about the time of the last Jesus Revolution by events that I would not have foreseen that put me in a place where I was ready to hear and receive the gospel. Right. I see so many times in my life that there was that soil preparation before the seed of truth could really germinate in my life, not only for the first time when I accepted Christ, but many of those other growing times, because there are other like recommitments, we would call them in our circles. But there are times when you just see a depth and a breadth of God that you hadn't before. He makes himself more personal than ever. And very often they've been in crisis times. And yet it's that soil preparation that allowed me to go, oh, man, the time was just right for this. Yep, absolutely. So it seems to me that we have another one of these rather difficult and probably third rail word kinds of topics today. We seem to have a lot of those in this season. Yeah. Yeah. So Mm -hmm. what is that particular topic that we're looking at that's definitely going to ruffle a few feathers probably? Well, the topic today is there are many people out there who have a misconception about God, calling him a genocidal or race-killing tyrant. Mm-hmm. I mean, those are pretty strong words. And I think, didn't you have a personal interaction with somebody who had an issue with this particular issue? I did. Uh, one of many. And she's a thinking person who had great questions. And I really sensed that she was open to good answers too. She's looking for real argument 
and not just emotional overreaction. And to her credit, she was kind in the way she posed those questions, unlike a lot of people who are skeptical or questioning. And I really, I love this person in, in an agape love sense. I really care for this person. And interestingly enough, I was so thrilled that uh, even though she works in other states because she has a job that helps her travel quite often, I looked out last Sunday and there she was in the back row sitting next to her mother. She was there in our church. And I was thrilled by that. We had a good little brief, but good chat. I continue to pray for her because she still has questions, but she had raised this a couple of years ago, maybe a little bit more than two years ago. She said, I see some things in the Old Testament that I can see why people would call God a genocidal tyrant, because it seems that he is ordering people to kill entire people groups, go in there and murder everybody, men, women, and children, don't even leave a donkey alive and wipe them out. That becomes a very difficult kind of passage to deal with in the Old Testament. And I applaud her for raising that question rather than just blinking it away or sweeping it under the rug. We shouldn't sweep those things under the rug. That's a good question. And that's what we want to tackle today. Is God a genocidal race-killing tyrant or not? Well, we could easily just say no and move on from there, but we want to put some valid points behind that. And this person that you were just talking about, obviously, is not the only one who has come to that conclusion. In fact, there's a rather famous atheist named Richard Dawkins, who goes into great length, who takes it to really an extreme level. Well, I'm going to record this next paragraph because Rick did a great job of reading it, but there were some electronic glitches that made it sort of hibbity hibbity hibbity. And so in order to avoid the hibbity hibbity, let me read this quote from Richard Dawkins, who believes that God is even more than just a tyrant. He said, and I quote, the God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction. Notice he uses the word fiction. Jealous and proud of it, a petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak, a vindictive, bloodthirsty ethnic cleanser, a misogynistic, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, filicidal, pestilential, megalomaniacal, sadomasochistic, capriciously malevolent bully, end quote. And I would say, Richard, don't hold back. Tell us how you really feel. Holy cow, there's a lot of big words in there, but they all come down to God's not a very nice God. Right. I'm pretty sure that there's some missing context in there. When we look at God, we find that this is the same morally perfect and holy creator. And he became the morally perfect human being. And he did this to save us from the same just wrath that was spilled upon the wicked nations in the Old Testament. Mm -hmm. You know, most of us know that Jesus gave his life as a sacrifice for the sin of the world. And what these other folks don't really know is that we violate God's law, whether we call it the Ten Commandments or the entirety of law that he gave, and we justly deserve the wrath of the moral law. Yeah. But instead, God sent Jesus to pay our fine in full. And that means that God can legally dismiss our case. He will commute our death sentence and let us live forever because our fine, our penalty, was paid by another, Jesus, who then rose from the dead, which we look at as the certification of 
the payment for the penalty. That's a good way to couch that. I like that analogy. So there are explanations that are accepted by many scholars. We're going to look at one of them today, and we'll look at one of them next time. And the first one we want to look at is what God commands of Israel's first king, Saul. He says, now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. That comes out of 1 Samuel 15. And that's a pretty strict mandate for Saul and his armies to do. Mm -hmm. And Saul may have had a problem with that. I'm sure a lot of his soldiers had a lot of problems with that to say, don't even leave their animals alive. Everything in that area is going to be wiped out. That is, I think, precisely the passage that was alluded to by my friend when she brought that up, as a matter of fact. When we look at this passage, we have to ask, now, what does this tell us about God? And to do that, we got to look at context. I know your favorite three words about biblical study are context, context, context. We look at verse 4 to give us the reason for his command. Mm -hmm. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noted that Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came up out of Egypt. So what we're seeing here is that God commands the Israelites to destroy all of the Amalekites. Mm -hmm. In this case, Israel is God's tool to administer divine justice. And in this sense, uh, we have to look at it and go, Israel is not behind the times. They're actually ahead of the times because Israel is not barbaric and backward in following God's command. Rather, God's command to destroy the Amalekites prefigures or gives us a precursor to the second coming of Christ at which the final judgment will occur and every human being will be called to account for their lives. So this is a precursor to that. It's a, a foreshadowing, if you will. My wife and I often talk about foreshadowing when we're looking at movies and they go, hmm, I wonder if that's foreshadowing of something that we're going to see again later. So when we look at this passage, we see that it tells us that God is a just God who will give everyone what they deserve for their actions. And that's something that we'll look at a little bit later as well. One of the things we probably want to take a look at is why there would be capital punishment at all. Yeah. And I think we have some reasons that will help us understand this passage in a little more detail. I agree. And it's always good for us, I think, if we're learning to be thinking people to learn to reason well, which means we need to look at different arguments. And so these are some arguments that people have put out for us to consider. One of them, uh, motivation for capital punishment says, first, the Lord tells us that he ordered the Canaanite destruction because of their sinfulness. The Canaanite sins included incest, adultery, bestiality, and even child sacrifice. I'd have to admit, those are pretty bad. And That's right. And, and I wonder if we can draw some parallels to what's happening in our world today, but we may look at that in, in, uh, in our conclusions. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. Things had gotten so off track. I mean, just wickedness. I don't, I don't know how else you could describe it other than wickedness. And those things were deserving of the death penalty. Those were death penalty sins in the Old Testament. And because Israel was a theocracy, meaning that God was the head of them, it wasn't some sort of a democracy. It was a theocracy. So God, in his infinite wisdom, had the authority to enact the death penalty back then for those sins. 
And the writer of this says, I'm not advocating for the death penalty today for these specific sins, except for child sacrifice. But back in the days of theocracy, especially when he was trying to give us foreshadowing for things that would happen in the future, God was in sovereign control. And since these sins were rampant in the Canaanite society, God concluded that death was the punishment that he prescribed. So that's the first motivation that some have come to believe might have been what factored into that unusual extreme measure by God. You know, we look at some of those things and they're just awful, especially in light of what the Israelites saw as a loving, compassionate God that was taking care of them from way back from the garden, even in the times of Noah, when most of the uh, world was destroyed. We look at some of the things that happened in the mid-Old Testament history, and there were some pretty, pretty difficult things for them to have to endure, both as the recipient of God's judgment upon them, and when they were acting as the uh, instrument of God's judgment on others. Uh, there's a second reason why this particular writer uh, says he believes that this may be some of the motivation for God to do what he did. Secondly, God did not show any favoritism toward the people of Israel, because we would tend to think, oh, he's just chosen these chosen people, because we use that term a lot. And so they're the favorites. They're the teacher's pet. And then he just poured out his wrath on these other folks. But he's a just God, so we need to see that as well. When they subsequently, they meaning Israel, when they subsequently committed many of the same sins, that the Canaanites had committed, they too suffered the death penalty for their sinfulness. The Old Testament clearly details that because Israel chose to intermarry with the Canaanites, they also adopted many of their evil practices. That was why God forbade certain intermarriages that way. That has been very skewed in today's postmodern thinking. Many people today think that God is a racist because he said that you're not supposed to intermarry And that wasn't because of racism, it was because of sin, and he knew that there was idolatry in this people group. So it had a whole lot more to do with that, as I alluded to briefly in the last episode. But they worshiped these other gods, they committed adultery, they committed incest, they even sacrificed their sons and daughters to the Canaanite god Molech. And since they chose not to repent of their sinfulness, God used the king of Assyria to kill many of the northern Israelite tribes and Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, to kill many of the inhabitants of the southern tribes. So we tend to think of God as being unjust when we look at only this out of context, but we see, oh, wait a minute, he could even call upon an evil king to be the agent of his destruction for people who are even more evil. And that's what he did with King Nebuchadnezzar. Doesn't mean that he let Nebuchadnezzar off the hook either. He got his own coming to him as well. But in that time when he needed some way to take care of that, uh, he meted out justice. And because he is God and he is holy and he is completely just, he had the authority to do so. And he did not play favorites with Israel. So they killed many of the inhabitants of the southern tribes of Israel. And we can see also that genocide targets a particular race, ethnicity, or nation, but not because he is a racist, but because we see God who punishes everybody who sins, regardless of their ethnicity or whichever nationality they might come from or whatever color of their skin. That didn't matter. This had to do with his punishment of sin. 
Yeah, so I think there's a couple more reasons that we can look at for the use of capital punishment. I really like the next one. Mm -hmm. Why don't you give us a little more info on that? Yeah, this is interesting. Thirdly, God gave the Canaanites ample time to repent. This is so important. In fact, he waited almost 400 years and until their society had become completely depraved before he instituted his command of capital punishment. We tend to think of things compressed in time. But when you see this, again, in context of history, God was being very patient. So what we see is a patient, just, loving God who doesn't want to punish, but he has to because he is just. Before he instituted his command of capital punishment, he was patient, he waited, he gave people ample time to turn their hearts back toward him and to repent of their sins. God is not this God who just willy-nilly in the snap of a finger decides, I think today I'm going to be genocidal. He's extremely patient. And in this case, we can see that there was 400 years of patience, in fact. Yeah, that's a long time. I think he was giving ample opportunity. I think he was waiting for the Israelites to turn from their wicked ways. You know, we see mm -hmm. verses that talk about that. If turn from our wicked ways, if we will pray, return to God, then he will heal the land. And in this case, they didn't do any of that. And so his only choice was destruction instead of healing. Mm -hmm. Fourthly, God limited this Canaanite destruction to only a specific area. So he had boundaries around it. So this wasn't genocide. He only destroyed those Canaanites that lived within the boundaries of the territory that Israel was told they could conquer. So he wasn't killing all Canaanites everywhere. That would be genocide. Those Canaanite tribes, I know it still sounds bad because that's a lot of people, but as we've described previously, their sinfulness was also heinous. It was wicked, but it's not genocide. And so it's important for us to get our definitions correct. And so for somebody to say, oh, he was genocidal, we can say, well, no, not really technically, according to the definition of genocide. Those Canaanite tribes that were beyond those boundaries were not affected by that. He didn't say, I want you to travel all around the face of the planet and find every Canaanite you can find and wipe them out. It only had to do with these areas that he had already promised to the people and said, you're going to inhabit these places. And these people are thwarting my plan by being so sinful. And I've given them ample time to repent. They haven't done it. So I'm now giving you the command to go in there and wipe these people out within these boundaries. Yeah, and there's good news. And this is when we start to take a more macro look at God's big plan. And one of the things that we see is that no one is truly innocent. Paul writes that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That comes from Romans 3, of course. But even before that, in Romans 1, he teaches us that everyone is without excuse before God. This means that a person doesn't have to be a Christian in order to know right and wrong. And that's because the moral code is built into us. It's in our DNA. The scriptures teach us that both conscience and creation testify that God exists. He's out there, and he is great. And we know that innately from what we know that's built on our hearts. I mean, you can go back to little kids. They know when they do wrong, and that's why they lie about it. But also, when we look at the vastness of creation, we know he's there, and we feel like nature is good. 
And so we know that there's a good God out there who created a universe for us to live in, but also that there is a sense of right and wrong. Mm-hmm. I think that's really important. And we tend to overlook that fact, especially we who believe tend to overlook the fact that there are people out there that they already have some sort of a conscience that God built into them. They're suppressing truth if they continue to deny that there must be a God that would have created all that. So there are certain amount of light available to them. And if they open themselves up to that light, we can trust that God being just will make sure that he continues to give them more light and that he will eventually reveal that Jesus Christ is in fact the way. We can trust him on that because he's loving and just. I was thinking about this next point while I was in the shower this morning. God's judgment is is a last resort. It's the final Mm -hmm. straw that he has to use. It's not a whimsical choice. It's not capricious. And I was thinking, you know, we look at that in this case where God waited about 430 years before he judged the Canaanites. And their sin had become so bad, it, it just reached the limit where it could could no longer be sustainable. And there's so many examples of that, whether it's Sodom and Gomorrah, Jonah and Nineveh. There are so many examples of long periods of time. I mean, for Noah, before the flood came, it was 120 years before the flood came and judged the earth. And I think about how long it was between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Hmm. The 400-year period where God didn't talk to the people at all. And then we have a small period of time, Jesus comes, that part of his big story takes place, and then not too long after that, the nation of Israel is wiped out for nearly 2,000 years. That's a long time, but in God's eyes, that's nothing. And yet, the promise was made, it was fulfilled in 1948, the nation of Israel was remade, and now we're in that last period of time before the final judgment. So we can see from those precursors all the way back into Genesis that there are periods of evil and destruction. There's a returning, turns to evil, destruction. A return to God, evil, destruction. And then we look at how his last promise is going to be played out in what we think is not the very far distant future. The phrase came into my mind as you were explaining that, the rhythm of redemption, because there is a rhythm of that all through history, and he's constantly pointing ahead, and he is so patient through each one of those hiatuses in the middle of that rhythm. So that was well put. I think it's good for us to see the whole picture, which is why we need both the Old and the New Testaments, because what we really see when we unpack the Old Testament is a patient, loving, just God, not a tyrant. Yeah, and his plan from the beginning, was for the fallen people to return to him through a Savior who pays the penalty. Yep. And, and, and that's the whole thing. And everything leading up to that, what we call the most important event in history, the resurrection, mm-hmm. all the Old Testament, a little bit of New Testament that leads up to that, leads to the most important point in history. And then the fulfillment that was promised centuries ago will play out, and and, uh, God's original plan will be that we live forever with him. Right. There was a documentary that Joy and I just watched recently, and it's kind of a modern-day example of what happens when you're given enough time to repent. 
there was a guy who he was a rascal. He was horrible, a drug addict. And he'd gotten into really the hard stuff, heroin, cocaine, you name it. Uh, he was always high or drunk or both. And he and some buddies went out and did some heinous things. And a young lady, very innocent young lady was kidnapped and raped and murdered. It was horrible. He doesn't even remember most of it because he was just that high and strung out. And he admits it. He says, no, the evidence all points to the fact that I did it. I admit that I did that and I deserve punishment. But he was in prison long enough on death row that he met Christ and turned his life around in a huge way, not just so that he could try to get a lighter sentence. This was genuine. And you could tell in the interviews that this guy had something. And I think it was the fruit of the spirit. He was becoming helpful to the chaplain. He was leading Bible studies for the other inmates. There's another person that reminded me that, that he reminded me of, and that was that young lady, Carla Faye Tucker, who had a huge turnaround, and yet she was killed by a lethal injection. But he actually gave his life uh, as the penalty for his earthly sin, and I think it was just. But the fact that God was patient and the fact that our judicial system is based on that even shows us that there are times when he took care of the thing that was most necessary because he needed his eternity secured. And he was even telling his family toward the end, he said, I'm so ready. He said, I'm tired of living this way. I'm tired of feeling like I'm stuck on the railroad track. And every time I look up, the light of that train is closer and closer and closer. He said, I'm ready to go home. And I know where I'm going now because my eternity is completely secure. So I really don't want a stay of execution. I know that we've been fighting for that. He said, but there's such a roller coaster of emotions and I'm ready. I'm ready for my future. It's such a better future. So I thought that's kind of what God would hope would be the result of his patience, including all the things that we saw through the Old Testament. And when it doesn't happen, then he does have to mete out justice. Otherwise, he would not be a just judge. We have a third point we've kind of alluded to before. When we look at the destruction of the Canaanites, it wasn't an ethnic cleansing, but it was instead an idolatry cleansing. God will have no other gods before him when the people choose to do that. His only choice is to eventually clean out the idolatry because he is the one and only God. And when people are worshiping the wrong thing, they're pulling the relationship away from him. And when we look at the Israelites, they went into captivity as part of that idolatry. Yeah. And that's when God used the Assyrians and the Babylonians to chasten them for their rebellion and to turn them back to him, which is the ultimate goal that he always wants. Right. But the judgment isn't God's first resort, it's his last resort. That's why we see the long time periods before the end action, after he's told them, you need to repent. And it's not genocidal. In fact, to bring the people back to him, God took our judgment upon himself through the person of Jesus. And that was to spare us the judgment that we deserve. So we think about what Christ did, his death, burial, and resurrection, where God ratified the payment of the penalty. He died in our place, and it's all because of his grace. Yeah. So when we look at some of the reasons why there has to be capital punishment. When we look at the last resort nature of God's judgment upon the people, whether it's Canaanites, whether it's Israelites, whether it's us, we want to take a look at his motivation. 
So what do we see as God's motivation for all of these things that we look at from the outside and back into history and go, that's just terrible. I think it's good for us to look at God's heart, his motivation, because it really does put it into a whole different category than it gets painted uh, by people who are skeptical or antagonistic toward this kind of God. First of all, it's good that you've continually shown us that any killing by God in the Old Testament was not genocide. In fact, he was motivated by moral concerns, not race. Genocide simply is not within his nature. So in answering the questions like, what is God really like? Or is God violent? We discover that he is mercy and loving, holy and righteous, fair and just. We see that all through the scriptures, especially in the Psalms. There are all these attributes that the psalmists would write about, and also in Revelation. God doesn't rush to judgment. He is slow to anger and filled with unfailing love, which is made new every morning. But he will judge the world with justice and the nations with his truth. So it's just not in his nature to be unjust. So we can trust that because of this moral concern, so that those who are with him and covered by him won't have to undergo that judgment, we can actually see that he's motivated by his concern for people, not by his anger at them. And the reason we can see that is because God could not be a perfect and loving God without equally being a just God who judges perfectly. He can't look the other way when wickedness is committed, and he would not be good if he did that. If he swept wickedness under the rug, we would think, what kind of just judge is that? Uh, We've used an entire episode to talk about that particular point um, many seasons ago now. (laughs) We did, in fact. So we have to look at the motivation, but then we need to look at his reasons as well. So what are some of the things that we want to look at to uh, not necessarily justify his actions, because he is just, you don't Mm -hmm. have to justify that. Mm -hmm. But there were some reasons why he allowed certain things to happen, and even commanded some of his people to take part in those actions. Mm -hmm. Well, Moses, this is one good example, he told the children of Israel that God will drive these nations out ahead of you only because of their wickedness, and to fulfill the oath he swore to your ancestors, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Can you see that? That it was because of their wickedness that God was driving out those nations. When God was ridding the land of the Canaanites that had been promised to Abraham, it wasn't because of anything the children of Israel did or because they were living true to God. They were not. The land was supposed to go to them because God had promised it to Abraham, and God was keeping his promise. Additionally, the Canaanites were destroyed because of their wickedness. They were idolaters. They engaged in incest and temple prostitution and adultery and homosexuality and bestiality, and they molested and sacrificed children. There are documentaries that would show that there are bones of young children at the bottom of cliffs that some of the leaders back then would use for their own pleasure and then just destroy and toss away like they were tossing out garbage. They were depraved people. And yet God was patient and extended mercy to them, even as they were in the midst of their despicable sin. He gave them plenty of opportunities to hear and repent. The people of Canaan were given over 400 years, as we've mentioned, to repent of their wicked ways. So God had nothing against them as a people or as an ethnic group. 
He did, however, take issue with their depraved and evil behavior. And that's why we see some of these, uh, what appear to be radical killings. When we look at everything we've just talked about, you know, we have to come to certain conclusions. And one of them is that even if you have a problem with this particular episode, defining it as genocide is a misuse of that word. Right. You can still have a problem with the thought that God would command people to wipe out another people group, but it wasn't really genocide. Right. But there was a reason for it. We looked at several of them. We looked at God's motivation. We looked at, at the reasons why he would want people to turn away from that particular lifestyle. But we don't want to misuse an understanding of God's judgment as an excuse to avoid the cross, which is what so many people who look at things that they don't like about especially the Old Testament will do. They will ask questions that can't be answered in a way that will be usable for them to come to a point where they have to be confronted by the cross. And we look at all of the scripture, and starting first at the, the cross of Christ, and we see the motive and the perfect nature of God who loves us enough to die in our place. Mm -hmm. He is both just and merciful, and those are two very important characters that we looked at in previous episodes. Oh, yeah. And the instant that we come to the conclusion that we deserve to die because of our own sin against a holy God, when we realize that we are lost without the one person who can atone for our sin, then and only then are we able to appropriate his grace because we can place our faith in that holy God by accepting the free gift of salvation. And that comes only through his son, Jesus Christ, who offered freely to die in our place was buried, and was resurrected three days later. I mean, that's the most important thing. If we look at the entirety of the Old Testament, it all leads to that one point in history where Christ paid the penalty for our sin. I was thinking as you were even describing that, the fact that God is both just and merciful. Joy and I have been watching a cooking show, and it's set in Great Britain, and there are people who come together and you get all these contestants and they'll be in the same room. They'll turn a house into a restaurant. And so the couple that would be cooking in that house are being judged and they're being judged by a couple of really professional chefs who have this excellence in mind. And you can always see the snarky people sitting around the table. They're the ones who are really critical. And you find yourself thinking, oh, they're going to get theirs. <laughs> When they get into the kitchen, things are going to go bad for them, too, and they're going to realize this is not as easy as it looks. And then when they do and something goes wrong and they're 20 minutes late getting their food out and then the judge looks at it and, and they get harsh critique, you think, well, you were judged with the same amount of harshness that you were meeting out to other people. And it shows us that we all have that desire for justice. We want justice to be handed out, whether it's a cooking show or whether it's morality and even an entire group of people that have adopted such wicked behaviors as a nation that God has to deal with that. And I actually see grace in God's handling of these things rather than a tyrannical, homicidal, genocidal God. I don't see that. I see a gracious God who's patient, who gives them plenty of time to repent, and when they don't, still meets out justice ultimately. That's a good thing. 
I can serve a God like that. And what we don't see in those stories is what would have happened had they repented. Right. There wouldn't have been the destruction. They would have returned to the right relationship, which is what God had always wanted. But instead, they continued on a path to destruction, and that's what occurred. Yeah. And I'm grateful that we can see that rhythm of redemption all the way through the Old and New Testaments as well, because it shows us that we too are in that spot, that if we were to call upon him now, he answers everybody who calls upon him. Very possible that some of our fellow theologians may need to call upon God right now, whether it's to repent from their own wickedness mm -hmm. or to finally realize that they do need a Savior. Yeah. And perhaps we can help walk them through those two different events. I would love to do that. I think one of the first things that somebody needs to do is to admit, I don't know everything and I can't play God. I would like to, but I can't. And I don't see all of history the way God does. And so it's easy for me to look at these snapshots in Israel's history and to judge God as he is presented in scripture. When I don't know all the facts and the more facts that I learn, especially starting with the cross and then working my way back, since we know who he is by what he has done, then what he has done is provide a way out for us so that we don't fall under judgment. So by looking at the cross, then we find that we have a God who gives us ample opportunities to see the truth, repent of our sins, and to have our sins paid for by what Jesus did for us. And all of the Old Testament points to that. And he was still the same just, fair God back in the Old Testament as he is today and as he was when he sent Christ in the fullness of his time. He brought all of that to fruition so that we can see his grand plan of redemption being played out. And if you'd like to surrender to his wonderful, loving grace, all you have to do is say a prayer, something like this. God, I recognize that I just don't know everything. And I do have a desire for justice. And as I can learn to see you as a just and loving God, then I pray that you will take away my skepticism and help me to see you more clearly. And thank you that you've revealed yourself more clearly through Jesus Christ. I need to see him and understand that he reveals the true heart of you, the God who does love us, loved me enough, in fact, to even die in my place to pay the penalty of sin because I am a sinner. And I recognize that I'm not perfect. And so I thank you that you would forgive somebody like me as well as forgiving anybody who calls on the name of the Lord. I'm so grateful that you loved us so much that you would send your only son so that whoever believes in him would be saved forever, that you would prepare a place for us in heaven and that we can be in your presence for eternity. And so I just want to take that journey with you. I want to step onto that path. I want to look at Jesus Christ as the guide because he's going to walk with me along that path for the rest of my life and into eternity. Thank you for your forgiveness. Thank you for guiding me. I accept you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. amen. So that's the first person that would just take that initial step. And then I think there are some who probably have come in contact with some of the skepticism, which is so rampant in the world today, because there's so much more pushback by people sometimes who don't know this whole story. They don't know the context of the Old Testament and New Testament. And so they're asking questions. And it's easy to get swept into that thinking and to become so skeptical that we would just walk away from 
a childhood faith or a fairly simple faith that we might have known earlier in our life and to be able to say, oh, I need to regain that. And I need to admit that I probably have bought into some things that are not accurate in the way of their definitions based on real scripture and what really happened in the Old Testament. So you could say something like this in a prayer. God, I recognize that I have bought into an awful lot of skepticism, some of which is unmerited because people are throwing stones at you and they're calling you names and they're trying to paint a picture of you that's not accurate. But as I start to see the context of the entirety of Scripture, especially starting with the cross as the starting point for interpreting all the rest of Scripture, then I start to see you more clearly. And I realize that you're a patient God, that you hate sin because you don't want people to be destroyed by sin. And you don't want to have to mete out justice, and so you give us ample time and lots of time when you're very patient so that we could return to you the way you desire. But ultimately, as we've seen in the Old Testament, pointing ahead in that foreshadowing, you have to be just, as you did with the Canaanites, and as you will do in your second coming, when you will judge the living and the dead, and there will be a great separation, those who are with you and those who are not. And so I just thank you that you're a just God and a loving God, and I can trust you for both. I can hold those things in tension, and that I don't have to claim that you are a tyrant but you're just a just and loving God. And both those things came true on the cross. They met together as Jesus took my place. And I thank you for that. Help me to see him more clearly. Help me to see your heart more clearly and to know your love more personally. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. As you were walking through both of those, the picture that came to mind was Jesus, as you call him, compassion incarnate. Mm -hmm. heartbroken over the city of Jerusalem, yeah, thinking that same compassion, that same longing for a return to God. It could have been, woe to you, Los Angeles, or New York, or Miami, or Rome, or London, or Shanghai, or Cape Town, or any city, small town, hamlet, anywhere in the world. He still is longing for each and every one of us to return to him. Yeah, well said. He does. That's his heart. He would long for us to return to him. No matter where we are, no matter what we've done, there is no sin greater than his grace. And he will accept everybody who turns to him with repentance and says, I I need to live for you. We hope that you will join us again, fellow theologians, for that next episode of Monday Monday Afternoon afternoon. Theologians. 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 Theologians.